wonder if they're, I wonder if they're coming out and they're waiting for me. To... Welcome everyone to Funny As, uh, the story of New Zealand comedy with our fabulous speakers, Paul Horan, Philip Matthews, Madeline Sami and Justine Smith. Yeah. Um, now, unfortunately, David McPhail was not able to be with us tonight, um, and we wish him all the best. Now, this is the second to last day of the Shifting Points of View season, and I'd like to thank those who have made this season possible. Creative New Zealand, the Rata Foundation, Christchurch City Council, Te Runanga o Naitahu, Heartland Bank, and the New Zealand Listener. Uh, we pay our respects to the mana whenua of Otutahi, Nai Tuahuriri, and we also thank our patrons, supporters and volunteers, um, and also Auckland University Press for supporting this event, and of course, you, our audience. Um, please turn your phones to silent, and in the event of an emergency, remain calm and follow the instructions of the piano staff. Now, I'm going to leave Paul to introduce our panel shortly, but I'm going to introduce him, in case he's too modest to do it himself. Um, Paul is the brains behind the Funny As documentary series. He's the co-founder of the New Zealand Comedy Festival and the classic comedy venue, but he's lived in Australia since 2003, um, which we've forgiven him for, um, and he helped create the project, which of course we now have in New Zealand. Uh, Paul works in Australia as a senior TV producer, but he maintains strong links with New Zealand, recording travel logs for RNZ and working internationally as a librettist. Um, in addition to creating Funny As, he's also currently an executive producer for Taika Waititi's production company, Picky. Um, would you please welcome Paul Horan and the rest of our panel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Um, uh, and it's my job to introduce the panel tonight. Uh, Dave McPhail, as we said, um, couldn't make it tonight. However, we have... Uh, my co-author of the book, Funny As, uh, Philip Matthews. Not um, near as funny as David McPhail. I'm no, sorry. Um, um, Philip is a senior writer at The Press and for Stuff. Uh, for 12 years, he was, he covered for the listener, arts, culture, film and everything. And Philip also did probably the first substantial piece critiquing stand-up comedy, in which he went to every mm. show in the comedy festival. Yeah, I kind of, I actually burnt out before the last couple. So, <laughs> so I think it was two or three shows a night. It was pretty intense. How but so Philip Matthews so, pretended he went to No, 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 I, I put that in the story. Radar and Brendan Lovegrove missed out, and uh, yeah. who knows what they were like. We what can you out. do? Um, so he was exactly this, the right person uh, to co-author this book. So I rang him and I said, let's do this. Um, uh, Philip now mainly works making trouble on Twitter. So, mm. um, uh, Justine Smith, uh, a proud daughter of Christchurch, proud Cantabrian, tremendous. Um, Got the thighs to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Justine, uh, when she made her debut at um, Kitty O'Brien's, one of the very first stand-up uh, venues in Auckland in the uh, mid-90s. 97, I think. Yeah. 
we'll call it, yeah, 97. Um, uh, but as she says on her website, she's been doing um, stand-up for blimmin' ages. It's not blimmin'. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Justine won the uh, Billy T Award in 2003 and has gone on to become one of the most distinctive voices in stand-up comedy, a very much a valued MC, and also has been the first woman to be the head writer of Seven Days. So, welcome to Justine. Only when the boys are sick. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Madeline Sami, uh, actor, writer, musician. Madeline burst onto the theatre scene with um, Bear and the phenomenal number two, and then um, went on to redefine how TV does character comedy with TV3 Super City in 2011. Yeah. yeah. Um, she has since gone on to be also a drama actress on um, various things like uh, just recently The Bad Seed, but also to last year, 2018, uh, The Breaker Uppers came out. Yeah, uh, yeah. One of the great New Zealand, now the great New Zealand comedy film, um, which she co-directed and co-wrote with Jackie Van Beek. Um, and last month it was announced to great joy of everybody, that uh, Madeline is about to direct a film for Netflix uh, called Hope, which is, will be enormously exciting for everyone. Jolly good. So guys, Madeline, too. welcome. Yeah. I think we might just sit here and applaud all the things you have done for the next Yeah, episode. feels good. Let's <laughs> yeah. give myself Let's a go. <laughs> <laughs> what have you guys done? Let's talk about you. Yeah. <laughs> what have you guys been up to? So we will be doing <laughs> we'll be doing questions from the audience, uh, in, uh, after we've had our chat for about we're going to chat for about an hour, mm. and then uh, we're going to open the floor to questions. So if you've got some questions, save them up till then. There'll be microphones around, so you'll beckon those, and we'll have a, a good old natter at the end. Um, but uh, first of all, it's lovely to be here in Christchurch. Um, I first came to Christchurch from Palmerston North in 1974 for the Commonwealth Games. So every time I arrive in Christchurch, the eight-year-old me is inside me kind of going, ooh, this place still retains a kind of real glamour for me. <laughs> Genuinely does. For whatever Christchurch has been through, it still, to me, is a place where uh, I saw a jumbo jet for the first time at the airport. <laughs> And the city was full of uh, white Kingswoods gliding around, and they had a stripe, a red and a blue stripe down, and they were driven by women with pantsuits, which was, if you've come from Palmerston North, this was the future. <laughs> Sounds amazing. So, I think it still is. Yeah. <laughs> So it's lovely to be back here in Christchurch in the future. It's changed a bit since 1974, but I don't find, think so. You'll find Not the pantsuits up there. Not for me. <laughs> so anyway, um, first of all, funny as the book, um, Philip and I, we should just briefly talk about this thing that we did. Um, uh, funny as the documentary was commissioned uh, just over a year ago, we started working on it. I did 116 interviews with. Uh, just about everyone we could think of um, in the comedy industry, including these guys. And um, 
from that, AUP were brave enough to think, let's do the book of the series, which you don't anymore. The, you used to do the book of the series quite a lot in TV, but now, um, so we said, let's mm. do this. And Philip, because of uh, his uh, critical eye, Mm -hmm. um, That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I barely met you. I think I hadn't met you for 20 years when I no. rang up and said, hey. Hey. The email, His email opened, came out of the blue and opened with a line about, I last saw you propping up the bar at Kitty O'Brien's. <laughs> yes. I thought, yeah, it's coming back a long way, but okay. Well, yeah. yeah. Sounds fair enough. And so we set out to stupidly write the history of New Zealand comedy in around about six months. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was a crazy undertaking. And if it, it looks crazy now. The original lineup of chapters was about a hundred chapters long. It was yeah. like the, every joke ever told by everybody in New Zealand was going to be in this book, <laughs> starting from about 1250 AD. But we, <laughs> we had to rein it in a wee bit, didn't we? So it was a fascinating journey because it hasn't really been done before. So our trying to find things, um, trying to find major pieces of information, dates, photos of things, was not we weren't dealing with the Alexander Turnbull Library. We were really ringing up people saying, Michelle, under your bed, do you have that photo? Um, or can anyone, or on Facebook, can ever, anyone remember the date we did this? So it was a really lovely collaboration, very hodgepodge collaboration between all of these things coming together. But that says a lot, and I think we're going to talk a lot about that in comedy. Mm. The comedy is a very much... It's an unprofessional profession. <coughs> that it is not funded by the government very much. It's something that New Zealanders have made up. So therefore, it reflects a lot about New Zealand and who we are. So mm. the book sort of is not the book of the series. Um, uh, by show of hands, and this is not because I'm the producer, uh, who's seen the TV series? Heaps of you, that's great. Great. Who's seen it? 47 times and can't stand to see it anymore. <laughs> ah, I know. Um, so yes, so, but the interesting thing is we didn't follow the, the mm. series, which is much more thematic. We followed a kind of a timeline. Mm. And from that, there is all sorts of departures and everything, things that we didn't know, people we kind of, uh, yeah. librarians would come up to us and say, you really got to find out about this woman called Iris. Um, wonderful things like that. Yeah. So, yeah. The, so, um, six one, months. One of, the, one of the people writing about the book this week said, it's not actually a history of comedy, it's a history of humour. I thought, well, A, that's a bit pedantic, right? Yeah. But B, that's kind of true. Comedy is a, what, is a genre, it's a stand-up comedy is a thing. Humour is a style of... Mm. And so it was really when we came to talk about who we're going to talk to on stage, we, I was very keen for these two guys because it's comedy's not just about stand-up comedy. It's we. This is the book about people who use comedy to say the things they need to say. Because sometimes when you say something with comedy, it's more powerful. Sometimes you can make it more stupid and, and infantilize it. But often it is a great weapon to say what you say. So a lot of people in here are not comedians but pe people have used comedy as a weapon, comedy or someone to get across something. So, kind of that's mm. where we started. Um, but first of all, I'd like to talk to you guys about, <coughs> comedy's a bit of a broad church. Um, uh, people have used it quite a lot. Why do you guys, Justine first, 
Why do you use, why do you think you've ended up in comedy? Um, because I was rebelling against my very straight Christchurch upbringing. Uh, my mother was a little bit like the Queen Mother. Uh, she was very proper. <clears throat> and so I always liked to talk and show off. All right. And, <laughs> and from a young audience? age. And, and I, I actually wanted to be a lawyer. I, I fancied myself as a lawyer, to, you know, a court lawyer, but then I couldn't really be bothered going to university. So, um, <laughs> so I didn't. I actually felt, I fell into comedy though. I, I was 26 when I started doing comedy, and before that, I had no clue what I was doing, you know. I was working in bars with Rachel and, um, in Auckland, and um, just drifting really. And it was our mutual friend Emma who I was waitressing for her and and she, because um, I had a smart mouth with the customers, and she thought that I should try it. And so I did my open mic night at Kitties and it was just life-changing for me, you know. I, I finally found something that I was good at, you know, and, and as cheesy as it sounds, I remember doing my first gig at Kitties and walking out and the world looked different to me. I, it just, I just found my thing, you know, and, and so I've been broke for years. Um, <laughs> you know, like literally I waitressed until I was 44, you know, and God, there was a lot of hate in that coffee, but, um, <laughs> but I, I guess I did it because it's, um, it's such a rewarding thing to do, you know, because I think a lot of people, you know, it's a lot of people's worst nightmare to get up and talk in front of people, and I, I get that. But weirdly, I can do that, but not much else. You know, like, I, you know, some people can fix a car. I think that's great. I, I don't, I can't. Um, but it's just, I don't know, it's just something that I found that I could do. And it's just, it's just, I mean... I think that people go, you know, they look at people doing comedy and go, well, is it as fun as it looks? And it literally is as fun as it looks. It's yeah. terrifying. But the fact that it's always terrifying. I'm always scared. I've been in comedy for like, how old am I now? 50. So like over half my life, you know. And I'm always scared. I mean, I was nervous coming out here, you know. Madeline went, are you nervous? I went, oh, I'm a little bit. But, you know, <laughs> I don't know. But the, the, the things that make it so terrifying are also what make it so fabulous. You know, you're there, it's all about you, you're on your own. If it goes well, all of the love is just for you. You know, if it goes yeah. badly, yeah. but you know, yeah, so that, I guess I did it because it was just a channel I found um, for being a show-off. So Mads, <laughs> Mads, for you, who, you came from a drama background, and I, you know, you, kind st of. you still, you know, you do drama at school. Um, but also, you know, um, Bear is a drama, uh, mm. Bear and Number Two, which were two phenomenal shows from the 90s. Um, but you've kind of gravitated towards comedy. Why, why have you ended up? Um, I think I was a little bit similar to Justine in that I, when I was a kid, I just, like my mum tells stories of me being like a two-year-old and right. she said you used to run into walls for people's enjoyment and you knew, <laughs> you knew at that age that it was getting a laugh. Yeah. So it got me young. So there was just something and, you know, I come from a big, um, on my mum's side, big Irish Catholic, Kiwi Irish Catholic family, 23 cousins, you know, seven, seven siblings, 23 cousins, all close in age. So there was always there was always a lot of performing. So in a way, growing up in my family was kind of like a, it was just a, a 
hotbed of talent and, <laughs> and, and comedy, you know, and I remember doing, um, I remember we, we had a Christmas once in New Plymouth, so I got family in Wellington and, and Auckland and New Plymouth, and we'd meet, we met in the middle, we'd always have a big family Christmas, and um, my uncle had the local Catholic nuns around for a, the performance, and I remember, this was one of the first times I remember doing a, like a performance, and it was, I was doing Kylie Mole impressions. <laughs> <laughs> For these nuns, can you, can, can you, you do, remember can the? You um, she it was goes, from she the... goes, she just goes. That's probably, that's probably it. That's probably all I had. I probably just repeated that over and over and thought I was so. Kylie Moll was on the Comedy Company, which yeah. is a massive yeah. sketch show. It was a mm. huge influence on me as a kid, yeah. and probably one of the first times I was like, oh, that's what I could do. You know, I could, and I always was a mimic. So I always used to do accents. My mum, I, I think one of the first ones I used to do was like a Southern Belle. And my mum would get me to say, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a terrible accent to be honest. Um, so I was in training from an early age, and I did like to get a laugh. Um, and then uh, through high school, I was in, um, I did a lot of improv. I was sort of doing everything I could really to become famous in America. It's <laughs> 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 probably what I thought was going to yeah, happen. Um, mm. I was going to get, you know, I was just going to hang around a, um, a drugstore. That's what happens. That's how you get discovered. Yeah. Or you hang around. That's, that was At the myth. Drinking soda. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't have drugstore. We have chemists in New Zealand. You can't hang around a chemist hang around a chemist. But yeah, so I... just going to get some paracetamol. Um, <laughs> so I, yeah, I, I guess from an early age, I just felt the need to perform and felt like that was something that I was really passionate about like mm. and and I loved making my friends laugh and I loved making my cousins laugh and um, you know one of my one of my very favorite cousins who I think is way funnier than me if she'd pursued acting uh, we used to have a a fake band um, this is well before Flight of the Conkles, I have to say. You used to have a fake band <laughs> called Gloss and Anya who were like Euro trash. And, and one of my other cousins would interview us in front of our other cousins and we'd be doing the reunion interview like where there was some reason that we split up. <laughs> and this is when we're like eight years old. And we had a bunch of songs that my cousins still today sing. There was a song called Lonesome Bras. Bras? Lonesome Bras. They're not mine, they're not hers, they're your bras. I don't know. <laughs> 15D, 15D, too big for me, they're lonesome bras. I don't, I don't know why, but it used to just crack up our cousins. And like, so, I don't know, there was just a lot of work going in very early on in my, before I even had a career. It's amazing. Um, and then, yeah, and then I guess um, the first professional shows I did were, was, well, the first professional one I did was Bear, and I told my mum that I was going to take a year off to try and do acting, and I'm still, I'm still in my year off. <laughs> <laughs> still in your year off? Yeah. We found during the um, Funny As interviews, so many comedians were not the eldest child. I was, because I was realising about halfway through, oh gosh, this is quite a good sample. Mm. So people who had, huge families that they performed for or who were always trying to keep up with the older child. Yeah. That's often the way. I was the second child, but my sister was um, really shy. So you're older? I, yeah, yeah. No, I'm youngest. Oh, no, but you're, was your older sibling yeah. shy? Yeah, yeah, same with me. I was the second. So I did all the talking for her. Are, you got, are there anyone here old enough to remember Miller's, the department store? 
I remember Madeline's story reminded me, I was like about five or something, and my mum and my nana were shopping for material to make, I was bored out of my mind. And um, my mum used to tell the story that I disappeared, and it was my mum, my nana, and, and my sister, who was behaving herself. And um, I disappeared, and she couldn't find me, she was really panicked. And she went out into the street and looked, and she saw a group of people looking in the window. <laughs> And apparently I had gone into the window and draped some fabric around myself <laughs> and was like, just giving it a bit of this, you know, like, and there was a crowd of people, so I think maybe that was how it started for me. <laughs> Go big, man. Go yeah. big. And the department the store. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we were doing the book, we found that one of the things, we ended up writing a history of New Zealand, which is really mm. weird. Mm. I was involved with, I was a writer for the Top Twins for one year. I'm the only male to have worked in the inner sanctum of the Top Twins, which was an experience and a half. Um, <laughs> amazing year. But during the making of the Top Twins documentary, uh, Leanne Pooley, the fantastic uh, documentary maker who made that, realised that she was making the political history of New Zealand. And I was really mindful of that when we mm. were doing this, that we kept hitting all the big issues. Like, really, when you look at comedy, we could have done the best history of New Zealand racism there is. Mm. Because the history of racism, of blackface, of racist jokes, of cartooning in particular. Mm. Cartooning, definitely. Mm -hmm. and we, it's kind of like, because comedy is topical and ephemeral, it tackles those contemporary things very immediately and then disposes of them. Yeah. So it's hard to go back and find out what people said in 1955 unless you dig into this stuff. But at the time, that's where it happened. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing, that's, comedians are very good at now, because you have to be, in a way that actors never have to be. Because um, Justine, when you're on stage, you are basically dealing with, there's, no, there's very few filters between you and the audience. No. But really, even though you don't, you, I wouldn't call you a topical or a no, satirical no, no. thing, but you are dealing with exactly what's happening right now, right here. Yeah, sometimes the not talking about it is powerful too. Like I did a corporate gig last week in, in um, Wellington and you know, you get a sheet and it's from your management that goes, uh, from the people <coughs> who are holding the event, can I explain that any worse? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> And on it was so wait, um, on this sh so shut up, get a sheet. What's on it? <laughs> I, I try to think of a non-sweary way to reply. Um, and so, and on it said, um, no uh, racist or homophobic or Trump gags. And I was wow. like, well, who the hell do they think I am? Yeah. You know. Um, but yeah, no, I'm not a particularly political uh, comedian. But um, I, I won't talk about Donald Trump just because he's so abhorrent to me that I don't want to think about him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you deal with a lot with now. But in terms of, because I, I find it really fascinating coming back to New Zealand, as I do, and finding how New Zealand stand-ups are dealing with hashtag Me Too mm. right now, and the change in audience. It's really different. It's extraordinary here, isn't it? It's really different here. I, I, I work a bit in Australia, and Australian audiences are completely different. Um, we in New Zealand have, have really embraced this Me Too thing, which I think is 100% good. And I think that uh, the, the complaining about Me Too 
to me is from men going, oh, well, it's just ridiculous. Oh, I can't say anything now. And I'm a bit like, well, suck it up. Because for a long time, men were allowed to say horrific shit. And mm. so I, whilst I believe we've probably got a little bit too, ooh, you know, a little bit too graspy on what you can and can't say, I think we, that's the price we have to pay for that pendulum to swing that way uh, to, to gather us all back to where we should be, which is kind of maybe somewhere a bit more in the middle. But when people go, oh, God, you can't say anything. Oh, God, I'm like, well, that's fine. I'm happy to navigate around that. Although it is a learning curve. The other day, oh, yeah, I'll say it. The other day I was in um, somewhere, and I used the phrase... <laughs> I use the phrase fag hag to refer to myself because I've always had lots of gay friends. And a young woman in the audience went, oh! And I went, what? She goes, you can't say that. You can't say that. And I went, well, actually, I thought, well, actually, it is a really horrific word, if you, the F word, if you have it in its entirety. So, so the H word's a bit horrific too, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a bit more hag than fag, to be fair. But, um, <laughs> but I actually took that on board, you know, and it's like not something I usually say, but it was an off-the-cuff thing about having a lot of gay mates, and I said, oh, I've been a fag hag from way back. And you know, it's something, now I, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that again, you know. Mm. It's, to me, it's normal because of how I my mates and how I talk, but, I, you know, I, I just think the Me Too thing is all positive, really. Yeah. And, and I think we can all just learn from it. And, and if people are complaining about it, well, you know, it's been pretty, I mean, you know, when I first started in comedy in the 90s, you know, and there was no comedy guild, there was no, there's nowhere to go. I mean, the goddamn shit that me and Michelle Acor and other women went through, you know, I just don't want young women now to have to deal with that. And there's so much you sort of, um, it's funny, like, I've been thinking about, like, that, that knee-jerk thing with me too and, and, um, and that thing of, like, the sensitivity around, you know, and there's always, there's been that debate in comedy about, like, because comedy is supposed to be on the edge of all that anyway, you yeah. know, like, we're supposed to be able to kind of... Push the boundaries. Straddle the, mm. you know, and, and, and push it out and just kind of be more risky. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think that... Me Too has happened so fast that yeah. a lot of comedians haven't been able to catch up and they yeah. haven't been able to, like... And so they get defensive. Yeah, and it's that's that right. sort of... Um, that, that guilt of... It's almost the guilt of having had the privilege of just saying whatever the fuck you want and that's not... exactly what it is. ...considering everyone's yeah, feelings that's exactly for so long what it is. that all of a sudden you're like, well, that's my thing. Yeah, so How, everyone's That's going, my identity. But I, have, now you're I can say me. what I want. Yeah. yeah, so, well, no, you can't. Yeah, and I think, you know, and I think a lot of... I've been realising... I've been sort of having a lot of moments in epiphanies in the last... with Me Too and everything just in, inside of myself in terms of, like, how much... I've internalised and, you know, yeah. how, how many times I've been in those situations and I've said a joke that didn't feel comfortable but I knew the audience would love it or, you yeah. know, like, because that's what, that's what the joke is, yeah. you know, or, or I've just let a... I've heard someone say a joke, a good friend say a joke yeah. that's kind of maybe hurt my feelings a little bit but, you know, like, and, and, like it's... And before Me Too, I wouldn't have thought about that stuff. Mm. But, you know, sort of Time's Up and Me Too has made me kind of realise that, yeah, we, we all have blind spots. And sometimes as women and as people of colour, we internalise them. Like there was this... Um, I don't know if you guys followed the kind of mad butcher um, uh, thing that happened where he... Um, said something to a woman in Waiheke or something, <laughs> told her to go home or something. <laughs> He's horrific. You know, but, but it's a really interesting, and Oscar Kitely made a really great point in an article that he wrote where he's like, you know, 
yes, P Peter has grown up around a lot of Polynesian cultures, and, and you know, and his friends, he will joke like that around his friends. There's one thing to do that, and then to kind of feel safe to do that with a complete stranger who's got a whole different set of values. Um, yeah, I just thought it was really interesting how you don't, yeah, you don't connect. And then, then when there's, there's this whole thing on, it just blew up on Twitter and people commenting and there was a guy um, who I know who was kind of commenting and he's a South Auckland, a Pakeha guy from South Auckland who was just like, look, I joke like this around my mates and they're all fine with it and like, who, who are you telling them to be all sensitive? He's sort of mansplaining a little bit. And I thought to myself, like, the guy hasn't ever, he hasn't thought about the fact that maybe, you know, like maybe what he needs to do is actually go to his friends and say, hey, how do, do those jokes make you feel, actually? Because yeah. I know yeah. you joke along yeah. with it, but, you know, there's so much um, joking along that women and people of colour have had to do over the years just <laughs> to get along and not yep. stir and, and just to get by and just to actually protect yourself. Especially you as be being the minority. Like, yeah. until really recently, you know, you're always the only woman on a lineup. I was always the only woman on. And, and you, yeah, even though my peers, I think on my kind of age level, really, were all nothing but brothers, always really supportive. It was it was more the audience and also usually people who booked the gigs would be a bit mm. gross. <laughs> you know, like just really annoying things like being in a lineup after the gig and the and who the promoter, big fat beer smelling dickhead, would come up and he'd shake all the boys' hands and he'd get to me, You were good, you were good, yeah, you were good. He'd get to me, he'd go, Oh, you were really good and then I'd have to give him a bloody kiss and a hug. So I don't do that now. I don't do that. I'm, I'm like, handshake will do, mate. That's what I do like that. I'm like, handshake's fine. <laughs> and honestly, even on the Seven Days Tour, you know, it's still like that. I guess the handshake's fine. And like, all the boys really support me. But you, you know, you guys like, oh, you like you bloody, bloody lesbian. You know, like, <laughs> it's unbelievable. I just, but, but, I've, but now I'm at the stage now I just go, no. No, get out, get out of yeah. it. Yeah, and it's just, and it's just a tricky thing because it's just like habits people get into, and yeah. the way, and the way the world is, and because Me Too times up happens so in a, in such a fast way, a lot of people are still catching up, you know. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of defensiveness around things, and you know, I've, t I've uh, you know, I have comedians and both friends in both camps that are just like, no, we should keep pushing it out. No, we should be a bit more sensitive. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the answer is. I think it'll but take a while to kind of. But this yeah. is one of the great things about comedy, is that this is a conversation that happens in green rooms. Mm. This doesn't happen when you get two playwrights together. Mm. You don't, especially when two contemporary dancers get together, they don't have this conversation. So it's kind of... They don't of, talk with words. They don't, no. <laughs> <laughs> Let's throw some anti-racist <laughs> shapes. So what that was. You're getting value okay. for money, ladies Sorry. and gentlemen. You're really we, knew the, we knew the comedians would take over, didn't we? It was bound to happen. But the, but I tell you what, take us back to Miller's. We want to have a serious conversation. Put us in the window, drape a little Miller's cloth is, over us. Miller's is gone, mate. Is it? Oh, yeah. But it's fascinating that these are the conversations that happen in comedy and that you deal with every day. Because it's brutal, because it's so, it's so raw, you know. Yeah. And that's why the green rooms in a, in a comedy club are just... <laughs> really interesting places. It's interesting being coming back to New Zealand and when we were, I was talking to the older male comedians in particular and the phrase um, political correctness gone mad got used a bit. Oh, but, yeah. I, but this is also partly kind of what I saw about doing the book was let's write your history because these angry white guys, I just tried to remind them that we are court jesters. 
This is our lineage. Mm. We come from show folk and we come from the court jester. Now, when you're a court jester, in, there's not a big uh, job description. But the job description is if you tell a joke that someone doesn't like, you'll get your head kicked in. That's, it's been that mm. way for thousands of years. But there is, for the first time, a generation of white men who are kind of going, when you, they get their head kicked in, they're kind of going, why? This is terrible. This shouldn't happen to me. I'm a court jester. Mm. But that is the thing. It's inherent within the thing to risk on stage doing something. And if people don't like it, that's part of the job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, it's a very fascinating cultural thing that has happened of people forgetting who they are. So that's one of the reasons a history of comedy yeah. is kind of important. And it's why, it's why it was the right time to do it as well. One of the things um, we found, I, I think we found doing the book, is that everyone thought they were inventing it themselves. Yeah. Almost no one thought anyone had preceded them in New Zealand. And I wondered if you guys, um, <laughs> yeah. I wondered if you guys, when you went into comedy, had a sense of other people ahead of you who had done things that you were doing in New Zealand. No. Okay. <laughs> not really back then. But, not but in New Zealand. But your granddad yeah. was a vaudevillian. He was. You're an actual, it's very rare to get a multi-generational comedian. It, it but just skipped then. a generation of my mother. <laughs> but yeah, my granddad was. Yeah, my granddad used to um, play the banjo, banjo ukulele, and he was, in a, he was in a double act. And I remember him going out to entertain the old folk, which is hilarious to me, because to me, he was the old folk. <laughs> but yeah, he was, he was great. I, he was amazing. Yeah, I did a whole show about my granddad. So you've got a sense of mm. what Philip was a talking A tradition of some kind, right? But when you were starting in stand-up, there was no... How did you learn about stand-up? You didn't... Uh, you learned about stand-up by doing it. Mm. Like, there wasn't... I mean, I remember watching... I mean, you know, and so, speaking of PC, I mean, my favourite... Um, stand-up was Eddie Murphy, you know, raw and delirious, Same. and oh, shitballs, you look back at that now and you're like, <laughs> but, you know, that's not to say it's not brilliant for its time, you know, but, whew, yeah, some of that rhetoric. That was the first, like, my, I mean, my brother used to get the videos out yeah, in the video yeah, shop, yeah. and it'd be when mum was out in the holiday, yeah. and we'd be like, let's put raw and delirious yeah. on, and we'd be like, oh, fuck this, fuck that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you was butt naked on a zebra last week, like, I could still <laughs> Remember, <laughs> I'm gonna rip your dick off, boy. And I, I, I literally feel like that was probably the inspiration for me for doing number two. Yeah, was right. that his performance, just being able to not change any, you know, costume, just flip into character yeah. so convincingly, yeah. was a big influence for, for doing that play. Because that was close <laughs> to the age I was watching it when I yeah. made that play. I was 19, yeah. so you know. Because all right, mate. Okay. It was, <laughs> <laughs> but it was fascinating. <laughs> It's a very long time ago. It's okay. It all catches up. It sure does. But it was, it was, it was fascinating to, talking to comedians kind of roughly fell into YouTube, pre-YouTube and post-YouTube. Because mm. mm. Rose Matafeo, extraordinary comedian. Yes. But really by the age of 16, knew more about comedy than I will ever know. Mm. She knows, and that generation from Rose down, mm have such an extraordinary literate things. Whereas we found out about from, yeah, Video, videos TV. from the video store and uh, Bill Cosby records came up a lot. Um, oh and Oh yeah. Um, a bit of Rolf Harris in there as well. Rolf Harris. <laughs> I know, it's true, that's true, that's yeah. terrible. All yeah. the greats. All the greats. <laughs> but, um, so it's, it's amazing that we 
piece things together, whereas they have this encyclopedic, they're also good at second guessing themselves though. But you, you know what, do you know what though? You know what's annoying about them? Is that heaps, they, they, they have the encyclopedia, but they haven't really soaked it in. Yeah. Because they've watched a five minute clip of it. Whereas we had to wait, you know, we had to wait till a Friday night. I used to have to wait. My favorite thing was a Friday night and they'd play. And this is, this is, this is why, you know, people go, how do you, how does the New Zealand sense of humor form or your sense of humor form? And it's because everything that we got, like especially in the 90s, 80s and 90s, we were getting all that sort of TV from, it was British and American. And there's such different styles of mm. comedy. So you get like faulty towers or like in the one night, my favorite comedy night was a Friday night and my mum would let me stay up late and it was Ab Fab followed by so um, In Living Colour, you know. Oh, with, um, amazing. The one, so it was like really extreme yeah. of comedy but big characters and like um, quite different, slightly different sensibilities, you know. Yeah. Um, and that was the training that I had. Actually, Ab Fab for me as well. I mean, I, I remember there was a scene where Joanna Lumley um, is pissed and she falls into a grave. That's <laughs> so good. Dude, I, ha I, I, I have watched that Literally, so probably about between 50 and 80 times. Yes, I think she is one of the funniest Same women of here. all time. Same that here. That character mm. is Absolutely. so amazing. So. But that's, that's quite a unique thing when you talk to Australians. Australians are much more influenced by American comedy. Mm. And yeah. Americans have such a very dim knowledge of British comedy. Mm. But New Zealanders they are really interesting. They think it's drama. Yeah. Yeah. They, find, <laughs> they find British comedy, like there's, a, there's been a couple of comedies that I've seen get canned in the last couple of years, American comedies, and I've loved them. And, I've, and then I've thought about it afterwards and I've gone, oh, they, they canned that because it was awkward. It was an awkward comedy. Right. And it was more in, the, in a British style. And yeah. Americans don't take to that very well, I don't think. <clears throat> no, the... Um, because I think we are kind of, do you think we're kind of half British, half American? Yep. I think mm. so. Maybe, maybe even more, a little bit more British, I'd, I'd I say. Think, I think a little bit more British. I think yeah. Australians a little bit more American. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think the, um, one of the things that is constantly emerging, like Scarlett Johansson's comment today, uh, this week, on the red carpet for Jojo Rabbit, the new Taika Waititi film, was, what did she say? I don't get New Zealand Kiwi weird. comedy is weird. Oh, yeah. Weird, yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Is that what she said? Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> hey, she's she's an honorary New Zealander now. If she Why? can make Jojo Rabbit a success, we all win. That's okay? true. Okay? That's true. So she's a sister. Um, because I, that weirdness I find really fascinating. Because that weirdness used to be something that New Zealand comedy was never a commodity, but now it is a hot commodity. Mm. Mm. And Madeline, I just, I've, said, I've quoted this to you before, but there was, uh, when Break Rappers came out, there was a review in Variety, the big American showbiz paper, and some journalist hit the nail on the head, yeah, I think, mm -hmm. in terms of New Zealand comedy. I'll just read it to you. The Breaker Upper is, has the increasingly familiar patter of Kiwi comedy. Dogged naivety, nervous politeness, <laughs> and hazy thoughts that trail off into vapour. <laughs> Isn't that it's, brilliant? It is New Zealand. Yeah. It is, it's, it's distilled into a perfect it quote really for good. what... I've tried to, I've got to try and commit that to memory because people ask, uh, you know, when we were doing promo for the film last year, people asked us what New Zealand comedy was and I kept wanting to say yeah. that. But, mm. I, then I, but for them, probably in my trying to remember how to say it, I came out as those very <laughs> <laughs> Well, New Zealand comedy is sort of 
So when you were doing breaker uppers, is that is that what you're thinking? Is that you're thinking <coughs> I am in the line of you know, uh, eagle versus shark. Are you, you know, are you, how conscious do you think that is in the way you do stuff? I don't think it's conscious at all. I mean, I think it's just whatever we find funny. You know, we, we're trying to make ourselves laugh. You know, when, when Jackie and I are writing, we're trying to think of scenarios and dialogue that makes us laugh and characters that are recognisable to Kiwis. You know, we, we never imagined... We never tried to write a film for the world. We tried to write a film for our friends and our family and New Zealanders. Um, and, the f and yeah, I mean, it was really eye-opening, you know, to, the, the, the world premiere of Breaker Uppers was South by Southwest, and Jackie and I, you know, we're both, like, busy women with our families, and, and we hadn't thought about the premiere being in America at all and, until we got there and we saw the line and we were like, oh, my, oh my God, are these people actually going to get this? Like, we're doing New Zealand accents in this movie. <laughs> and, you know, I remember starting out in this industry and people trying to get you to, you know, like if you do American standard things, American. They, yeah, they're trying to get you to do standard American accent or they're trying to get you to soften your New Zealand accent or everyone was trying to take a um, sitcom idea from America and make the New Zealand version of it. Like, there was a lot of, like, looking out, out you know, and um, thankfully we're not there anymore. But so we were quite nervous. We were just like, but the response was amazing, you know, in the room as well. Just getting every single joke, apart from you know, like the Rainbow Zen one, probably. Um, <laughs> which is a very specific joke <laughs> that only about three people laugh at every time. Um, but yeah, and and just the feeling afterwards of just like you know, and especially I think the real tipping point was was I think Ty what Tyker did with Thor, because. You know, and I'd just seen it on the plane on the way over. Wow. And I couldn't get over how Kiwi that film was, regardless of just his character, which is, you know, his little cameo was amazing. Um, actually getting kind of like a Māori character into a Marvel film. A big CGI Marvel film. How much money did they spend on that movie? Oh, my God, I can't believe you got away. But, you know, the whole style, <laughs> the whole style of the movie was very Taika and very Kiwi, very the, that quote. And then for us to get to South By and for people to see those qualities in our film as well, um, even though I'd say probably the style of our film is slightly, you know, our voice is slightly different and... Um, uh, than, than Tyker's, obviously. Um, but it was a real moment where I just was like, there's a thing now. People know this now. Yeah. This is not like you're coming to a festival where people aren't are going, oh, those, that was that quirky movie. That was really weird. People are like, that's Kiwi comedy. I love it. I love <laughs> Kiwi comedies. Yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> see more Kiwi comedy. You're so cute and awkward. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. People in LA now doing meetings if you're a New Zealander, it used to be, you know, uh, oh, where do you live? Oh, I, I come from Australia, New Zealand. Now it's kind of, I come from New Zealand and go, oh, do the thing. Do, do that Kiwi thing. Mm. Yeah. And it's a commodity now, a saleable commodity. Mm. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> I think because it's, uh, I think because there's a real um, genuineness in it and, and there's a sort of sweetness in our comedy, as well as there being able to be a kind of, uh, you know, we can make a point as well, but there is a, 
a quite, a, quite a sweet, it's the naivety, I think, that it's people these, really respond to. It's these dorky, to. unthreatening yeah. New Zealanders. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Dorky. You know, we can blame the Concords for that. I think they established a dorky, unthreatening Absolutely, yeah. And I think also to American comedy in particular, it's the satire is so combative now because of Trump. Comedy, comedians are coming out swinging and they're swinging hard. I think the audience are a bit sick of that. Mm. Mm. So the naivety of the dorks at the end of the world is yeah. kind of really appealing. We should have called book, our book Dorks at the End of the World, yeah. shouldn't we? <laughs> Those sweet dorks at the end of the I'll world. I'll take it. Yeah, that can be your next show. But also when your president is so, like when your news, when your daily news is just like a comedy, satire, horrible like a comedy, comedy show. Every day, like yeah. where do you go? Yeah. 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 Um, it writes itself. One thing I'd like, because we're in Christchurch, I'd like to ask Justine and Philip in particular. Mm. Um, we talked a lot uh, to Christchurch people about the particular talking about New Zealanders are outsiders in the in Hollywood and everything, but Christchurch to a certain extent is also an outsider in the Auckland dominated comedy mm. industry, which is fair enough to say. Well, do you think there is a you know from and I'm going from uh, a week of it and mm. Dave McPhail and Lynn Waldegrave and Annie Whittle and the enormous contribution that Scared Scriptless has made to training New Zealand comedians and making them fearless. You know, we've got Cal Wilson, um, Chris Parker came out of the Scared Scriptless system here. Do you think that there's any, and I'm not trying to define this, but do you think there's any Christchurch thing that they bring to the table? Oh, yes, I do, but I don't know what that is. Hmm. But I feel like there Distill is. Distill it. Distill it, Distill guys. It. Come on. You have three it's even, it's even. It's less threatening dorkiness. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is. I think the 70s thing was really important, and I'm really pleased we've got a lot of uh, McPhail, Gadsby, and especially A.K. Grant, who I think was a genius. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I really enjoyed about this was going back and actually reading his stuff from the 70s, and it's still brilliant, still really hilarious. But I don't know if what they were doing was any different to what John Clark was doing because of the geography. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if New Zealand is, is big enough and diverse enough to have scenes that are that different. I think I had a sense of um, pride about mm. McFarlane and Gadsby. Yeah. I think growing up, watching them on TV, which we did all the time, um, I think that I had a real sense of pride that they were two guys from Christchurch. Mm. And I think that probably stayed with me. Yeah. Um, it's just a sad fact that 99% of comedy happens in Auckland, you know. It does now. I mean, this, it was interesting yeah. doing this to realise how much didn't happen yeah, in Auckland that's right. until well, the last 20 years or so, yeah. right, when everyone had to move to Auckland to work. Yeah. That's a real shame. I it think. is a shame. New Palmerston North has been drained of its talent by... <laughs> yeah, but no one wants to live in Palmerston North, mate. No. Very good. No, exactly. even even the mayor of Palmerston North doesn't defend Palmerston North. Um, <laughs> it's, never, it's never got over John Cleese, has it? Do, we, I mean, do people talk about that? Oh, down yeah, there? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's you know the other flat town is Palmerston North. Mm. Um, but I, I do think that there is something here. One of the things, yeah. um, the many many things that we never got to cover is um, uh, very early on. Um, I went to Smith's bookshop. Um, in its new place and had a chat um, and they gave me a whole lot of capping magazines, so the university comedy magazines f during the war. Wow. And unlike any other 
university comedy magazine, women were allowed in to write comedy during the war. Because in Dunedin, Dunedin, women were banned from writing, being in the Capping Review or being writing comedy anywhere mm. until I think it was the late 50s. But women took over the Capping magazine here. And I've got three of them. I'm going to try and find all of them. Because there's this beginning in, in the cartooning as well. There's some cartooning by these undergrads that's quite proto-feminist. And it's interesting to find these strands. So perhaps that's another mm. book altogether. Cool. Mm. Well, that sounds amazing. But yeah. Um, but yeah, there's so many little threads that we yeah. never got to do. That's right. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So there'll be a second volume coming up. Great. Uh, volume two. Even funnier as I think we're calling it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I'm gonna. We'll do the last question, and then after that, we'll open and have a chat to you all. But um, just the future of comedy now is comedians have moved into everything. So you're not just doing stand-up or making movies. There is now comedians, especially in things like the Project and in columnists. Comedians are now telling us what to think. Comedians are our commentators and taking the place mm, mm. of our senior journalists. Now, the, probably the very first instance of this I would like to show you now. We found this in the archives. We didn't put it in the TV show. It's truly awful. But it is, <laughs> it is the first instance of Paul Holmes oh, God, doing wow. journalism. Wow. And this was the beginning of a phenomena I'd like to talk about, which will make itself apparent. But Joe, could we have the, the Holmes clip, please? Never seen since 1973. So. Oh, God. <laughs> hmm. Now, the, the other thing I'm seeing in that clip, though, is the incredible knack Muldoon had for neutralising criticism by taking part mm. in it, right? Yeah. Because when you get to McFarlane's yeah. book, it's a pity David's not here, when you get to McFarlane's book, Muldoon kind of confronts him and befriends him, or appears to befriend him, and David's convinced that he's trying to cancel out his satiric mm. edge by catering up to him rather than being like, afraid of him. Like right? Paula with Tom. Yeah, exactly. Paula, Paula likes oh, to. Yeah. This is the first instance that we can find where a politician, this is Sir Robert Muldoon, for those who are a bit younger. <laughs> those, under, those under 50. Um, uh, probably one of the most evil people ever to rule this fair shire. Um, uh, the first instance of a, um, this was for a, an evening uh, news show and they were trying to do some fun things with comedians, uh, fun things with politicians. Um, uh, Bill Rowling uh, had done a little bit with John Clark, but Muldoon was the person who went right. 
Mm. I'm going to get one over on these comedians. Mm. And this is the beginning of this terrible, fraught relationship between politicians and yeah. comedians in this country. Do we think right now that we're getting too many comedians telling us what politicians should do? And are we getting politicians like with Thomas Sainsbury and his Snapchat stuff and Paula Bennett, is that relationship too close? Mm -hmm. What do you reckon? Do, does it, I know, this, this is a, another question that McPhail and A.K. Grant had was, do, does the satire humanise these guys and therefore defeat itself, right? And you think this a lot with Trump in the, in the mm -hmm. States, seeing a lot of these comedians, you could get all of your news um, quota from watching, you know, the um, late night news stuff and late night comedy stuff in the US. Um, and uh, what kind of image of Trump are you getting out of that? Are you getting a sort of a cuddlier, funnier, demented uncle kind of image? Or yeah. are you getting the full picture of what he's up to? Demented uncle, if only. <laughs> but that is the thing. Our image is coming through from satire shows. Mm. And I think of um, Trump as a, as a buffoon. But he's not. He's the most dangerous person in the world. Mm, mm. Is, is comedy making things, knocking the edges off too much? Yeah. Should we be, should we, basically, should we be more serious about things? So, at, on, on TV at the moment, at 7 o'clock, you can watch Jeremy Wells, who's a comedian on TV1, mm. or you can go to TV3 and watch Jesse Mulligan and Jeremy Corbett. All great people, all really funny, but do we kind of miss having something a bit more serious and analytical going on there? Has comedy taken over? Yeah. Plus the comedians. Yes. <laughs> I definitely, I mean, I definitely followed this, you know, I was in the US when the Trump stuff was happening and, I, you know, there was a lot of backlash with, like, Jimmy Fallon, mm, particularly. Ruffling his hair. Ruffling that, his hair. Yeah, that and, was a low point. And that was, I mean, there was, he was so, for such a long time, and, and not a perceived threat, Trump. Mm. So there was a lot of playful interaction and then all of a sudden it got really real and, um, and there's a real weird, it's a real interesting kind of case study of the US in terms of like how that can turn out in the end yeah. um, and, and that Trump got into power. But, you know, he was also like a reality star before that and it was sort of like the, this cult of personality type thing. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to say whether or not that helped or hindered him, you know. At the time, I remember thinking but surely people can see that he's being mocked, yeah. you know, and that he is a buffoon and all those things. And yet there was a section of the population that I'm not friends with that probably perceived that to be like, oh, he's just a sweet guy. <laughs> I will vote for him. So I don't know. It's, it's, a really, it's a really tricky one because there's always going to be groups of people. It's like, um, uh, you know, and just in just bringing the conversation back to me and my work for a second. Um, <laughs> no, but like playing a character like Uffa in, uh, in, in Super City, you know, who was a polarizing character. She's supposed to be, she's not, she's, a, you know, this very vicious uh, winds worker. Um, and, you know, who's, I, 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 her, her idols were like, you know, um, Steven Seagal and Paula Bennett probably, you know. And I remember, I met Paula, <laughs> Um, at the NRL Nines one year, and she was like, oh my God, I love Offa. <laughs> my, my staff is, we have, 
we have your face like up on the walls in our office. Like, and you know, we're trying to sort of skewer what they were doing at the time, but (coughs) deliberately sort of putting off her in a spot where the people that love her and agree with her can watch her and enjoy her and the people that don't, they get what we're trying to say, you know. But, and so it was sort of like we, we played, we ran that fine line and I don't know, it's, it's sort of hard to know what um, message comes across when you are having reports like that where people are like, oh man, it's so great yeah. what you're saying about the system and da-da-da. And then you've got Paula Bennett on the other side going, oh my God, we love her. Like, that's it's just really like, what are we doing? That's the thing too, because often <laughs> you're not in control no. of how no. people consume comedy. Yeah. It's like on, a, on Seven Days occasion we do a um, game called Yes Minister. <clears throat> it's when a politician comes in and it's just a simple game where you have to make them say yes or no. And it's fascinating, you know, some, some politicians, I mean, I'm you know, Labour all the way, and some, you know, national politicians come on like, oh, who's this dick? But it's about the way the individual person <laughs> treats the game and how seriously that they take themselves. And it's, a, it's, a, it's really interesting to me mm, to, to, mm. to be able to get at politicians like that, to, to have them come in and sit right next to you. You know, I had a serious altercation with David Seymour. And um, <laughs> I'm proud of that to this day. And, <laughs> but, it, but it's interesting the way that politicians, you know, how, how it is when they're around a whole lot of comedians. You know, sometimes they do the right thing, which is to relax and just not fight it and not try and be the funny back. But the worst thing you can do as a politician around a whole lot of comedians is to try and be a comedian back, and that's when you look like a total dickhead. So yeah. it's, 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 it's been fascinating for me to like sit right next to these politicians, you know, and better say horrific shit to them. <laughs> I, do think it, I do think it is a little bit dangerous because basically, you know, if, if you're a comedian and you're like, you're, you're about, or, you know, you're a part of one of these shows, you're about getting ratings and you're about getting your show. If you're a savvy politician, you're about coming across like one of you. Yeah. Mm. And it's a way for both parties to achieve their goal. Yeah. By getting a politician on your show, you're going to get people watching your show. By getting, you know, by getting to come across like that, you're going to seem like you're one of the, the people. And it is a very, like, no, none of those parties are yeah. actually trying to do what's right for the people. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So That's I do true. think, I, I think it needs to exist, but I do think there, if, if, if we're getting too many of those things and not enough like proper political discourse, like, you know, I remember um, like when John Key was in, he, he would never go on national radio. And it always used to really annoy me because my mum was constantly, you know, and, and some of the best journalists are on national radio and some of the best interviews are on national radio. And it used to annoy, I was like, why, doesn't some, why can't he be forced to go on national radio and answer some yeah. questions, you know? And yet he'd go on ZM or something and do, um, do a funny interview that yeah, people right. were just like, oh, Jamal so fun, you know? Mm. Talking and, about and going wheezing yeah, a bit Yeah, and, and, and he was really able to, um, you know, and Jacinda probably does the same thing, you know, they're really able to just show you the person they want to show you as opposed to being really, um, having to front up and yeah, answer the hard questions. Yeah, especially with social media and stuff, that's really true. Yeah. yeah. I think the left are actually more savvy at it in this country than the right are in terms of using comedians yeah. and social media yeah. much more. Yeah. It's, um, it's going to be interesting to see how the selection goes. Yeah. Um, but I'll probably be back in Australia crying. Yeah, <laughs> so, yes. Trying to work out who the Prime Minister there is this week. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. To quote John Clark, you don't know how lucky you are. <laughs> Radio. Um, 
I think we should do some questions from the people because you're interesting, but so are these people. Yeah. So um, there's some microphones going to come down, and uh, if you put up your hands, um, questions of a crisp nature are appreciated. <laughs> crisp. crisp, crispy questions. Yep. Um, so anyone, any hands up for any questions? No, Anything you'd no. like to uh, clarity like on? No, they don't like talking, eh? Unless you're me and Jack. Howdy. Hello. Give us that mic. Hi. Um, it was really interesting hearing you talk about the comedians that have influenced you and also talking about how, um, what influences, well, how we can relate to other countries like England or um, America. So I'm just wondering what you think of Australian humour. Like the castle or Kath and Kim. Or I love it. Huge influence on Huge, me. massive, yeah. yeah. I met Peter Rosethorn, who plays, I can't remember his name, on Kath and Kim, the daughter's husband. What? Brett, that's Brett. right. I Brett? worked with him in Australia, and for the first 10 minutes, I couldn't even talk to him because I was just like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's really tall. Um, I love, yeah, I love yeah. the castle. I love that kind of Australian. Catherine Kim, I think, is brilliant. Uh, uh, to me, that's like Ab Fab. I could watch that. I could watch reruns of that any day. Mm. Yeah. I feel like, and um, it's clever as. I feel like there was a really sweet spot of yeah. Australian comedy, like Muriel's Wedding and The Castle and all those kind of films. Is it all Melbourne? Is this all the stuff Melbourne rather yeah. than Sydney? Is that what happened? It was, most of it was Melbourne. Yeah. yeah. There is actually just, there was a, there's a very famous document within the ABC which made the first series of Kath and Kim where they sent the Kath and Kim scripts to an American script advisor. Oh, wow. Now, if you think about Kath and Kim when you put it on paper, it barely makes sense. Mm. <laughs> and so if you're American that don't know Australians, well, on, you just look, look at this. And apparently, um, and it was so bad that it was almost immediately hidden from, Jane and Gina have never seen it. But there's all these people that say that they've seen it or they've got a copy. But they, this person was just saying, none of this is funny. None of this will work. It's unstructured how, you know, please bury this, cancel this show right now. <laughs> and it was a really, it wasn't Linda Seeger or John Vorhouse, but it was a really important person. And um, ABC delayed it for a couple of months because of this, and thank wow. God they didn't. Yeah, oh my God. That's yeah. often the way with um, comedy and television, is that if you're making comedy for TV, there's usually this battering ram of people that you've got to get through and working in TV not so much now but even a little while ago you'd, you know you'd write something and then because there was a budget usually um, people would come along and go we don't need that we don't need that we don't need that but so much of comedy is around the story you know so you get you get your editors and your producers coming and go we can't afford to do that or that and so they just ruin everything and I think that um, yeah, it's true, like early days of like, you know, John did the Jono project and Jono and Ben I worked on and we would write sketches and they would just be ruined, you know, and, but I think that that's changed now slowly because yeah. they're now trusting us to, to know what's funny. Mm. Mm. But, yeah, oh, sorry, just going back to Australia, like the comedy company was a, a huge... Yeah. And Full Frontal was at yeah. Australia yeah. as well? But Rima was in it, was she? She was on, um, after Full Frontal... Yeah, Full Frontal, the, the last series. Her and Jennifer Ward-Leyland. Yeah, oh, Rima was a huge, big idol for me as well as a kid. Um, just like her characters and getting yeah. to work with her in the film was amazing. Australians will know Rima Tuieta because of the impression that she did of uh, Whitney Houston. 
And there's a Whitney Houston song, she did I Will Always Love You. Well, and it is still, Australians of, uh, who watch TV in the 90s will still say, oh, that Whitney. I've never seen that. <laughs> it's amazing. YouTube it when you get yeah. home. What's it's happening hilarious. in Australia? Because you over there, cause, and this is a question that I had, and this is because, I'm um, sorry, I, I, we are going to get back to your questions, but I just have a question, a serious question to ask Paul about comedy. Because um, we, we got a lot of sad people asking us about what we thought of the Australian comedy scene when we were doing promo for the Breaker Uppers last year. They are like... New Zealand comedy's just having this big moment at the moment, and like, so like, what's hap like, what's happening here? Like, what do we need to do? Like, you know, <laughs> and I and I thought, think back to that time that inspired me so much, like The Castle yeah. and Muriel's Wedding and um, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and all yeah. those like great films. What do you think's happened over there? I think it's really interesting at the moment. It's fracturing because Muriel's Wedding and Comedy Company work when you've got everyone watching the same amount of channels, and you've got an idea of mainstream Australia. Mm. Yeah. Mainstream Australia doesn't exist in the popular imagination now. It's all fractured. Yeah. So consequently, similar to here, it's all online. All the best stuff is online. Mm. Like, like the Aboriginal... Catering, the catering girls. Yeah, catering yeah. girls. Yeah. Um, Aboriginal comedy in particular has had this yeah. amazing renaissance. Mm. Some of the most filthy-mouthed <laughs> women in the world of comedy right now are Aboriginal women kicking goals. They're amazing. Mm. Nikea Louie and um, there's a whole group of them now who are savvy on social media, but they've found a way to get round all the, the gatekeepers yeah, right. and just doing um, their thing, niche thing. So it's, mm. Australia is now all niches. There's no centre, yeah. mm. which is, it's now looks like Australia because the comedy company never looked like Australia. It had nothing to do with it, but it was funny. Mm. Mm. But um, the death of the mainstream is dominating comedy everywhere. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm. But enough about me. Sorry, um, questions, any more questions? Howdy. Hello, good evening. My name is Camilo and I've just been here a few hours in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> But I now know who Muldoon is, thanks to the clip. <laughs> and I'm, I'm curious, I work in Colombia as a human rights advocate, and for, in many situations, humor, comedy is a way to speak the most inconvenient or painful or dangerous issues to light in a way that can be received by a broader audience, many times costing the lives of some comedians. Obviously, the stakes aren't as high in New Zealand, but I am curious, maybe touching on the subject that was asked earlier, are there topics that are too taboo to discuss? I, in particular, I'm curious. I didn't know anything about this show other than the friends that brought me here, but I did see the, who I thought was a Maori man on the brochure, and then I see no Maoris on stage. I wonder if some of the, the cultural aspects I think are shared with Australia that I, I understand that are there Maori comics? Are some topics possible to discuss without there being Maoris present? Certainly, having studied in the US, issues of yeah. indigeneity and race certainly are very prevalent. I suspect they are in this country too. And thank you for That's having me. That's a great me. question. Yeah. Thank you very much. So, <coughs> is, there, is there stuff, places we don't go? Mm. Oh, definitely. Yeah, t totally. <laughs> Heaps. <laughs> now, your job as panel members is to, to say what these things are. Mm. 
<laughs> well, or at least allude to them. I think that New Zealand is really, it's, it's unique because even compared to Australia, we have a really, I mean, it's, it has its ups and downs, but we have a fairly healthy relationship with our indigenous people, with Māori, and I think that, especially now, I mean, it's Te Reo week, and I think we're proud of it, you know, and there's not really, I mean, easy for me to say as a honky, but, you know, there are, there are a lot of um, Māori comedians, there were a few, there are, you know, there are quite a few people of colour doing comedy, and I, I don't know that it's that divisive, I don't know that... I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, for, for a long, like the Billy T Award is which you've won. I have not. Uh, I have not won it. But Speak I've, for you, man. I'm going to get into stand up next year. I've got for the Billy T. next year. I'll be judging. <laughs> hey guys, just a brand new comedian from Auckland. Um, yeah, but like Billy T Jane, for a long time in New Zealand comedy, um, there was a real battle um, about a, like a, a sort of cringe, cringiness. Um, that we couldn't get past, and a lot of it is to do with the fact that we had this brilliant Māori comic in the 80s called Billy T. James, who set the bar so fucking high that everything was compared to him, and it's only been in the last few years that people are starting to embrace you, mm. and he was very much like, you know, of like, time. of his time, but also like everything, like, so future in terms of, like, commenting on political mm. things, and, um, you know, his sketch about um, the the colonisers, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. was so ahead of its time. Um, and New Zealanders really embraced him and, in fact, held him um, to such a high, you know, uh, standard, like held, have held every other comedian that's ever existed in New Zealand to such a high standard. Yeah. It's, been, it's been hard. Like, the, the phrase, oh, he was, he's all right, but not as funny as Billy T, yeah. is, is a very commonly heard phrase from comedians <laughs> in New Zealand. Um, and this is a guy who died... A really long time yeah. ago. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so, yeah, and I, I do think that um, we've got a lot of work to do, but we do um, have a pretty damn inclusive um, yeah. scene here. Um, and so, yeah, and in terms of taboo topics, I don't know, miscarriage? I haven't heard a lot of uh, stand-up no. about miscarriage. I th it's so personal, too, what you will and won't talk about. It's really personal. But I think there is, in terms of, especially in South American comedy, which I don't have a great knowledge of, but I know that, especially in Venezuela, there's been a lot of comedians killed for being doing political stuff. Mm. Here, it is more about social stuff. Our, we talk about race way more than we talk about race in Australia here. Mm. Here, mm. the race conversation, I think, is it's something. It could go a lot deeper. Mm. We had, I talked to a senior expert in Maori performance who wouldn't go on camera, who said, he said the, that there are so many Samoan comedies, comedians now because Maori comedians are starting to second guess themselves and are less and less likely to criticize their own people because of the bureaucrat mindset that this person saw that Maori were now in. Mm. And he said there used to be a joker, a kind of um, a real joker role in Maori society that he said is almost extinguished mm -hmm. because Maori making fun of Maori, he saw as really in danger. But he said it could come back. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. another thing that we don't talk about in this country is class. We pretend yeah. it doesn't happen. Um, inequality doesn't really make it. Mm. Anything else? Poverty? No 
no poverty in mm -hmm. New Zealand. Um, so there's a, yes, you are, the answer to your very good question, and thank you for answering it, there is a lot of things that we don't talk about, but working primarily in Australia, it's a lot healthier, I think. Mm. Yeah, I bet. Other questions? Other questions down the front here? Yeah, I mean, we do, I do, um, the class thing is really interesting, eh? Mm. Yeah. Because it's, it's sort of hard to define, it's still, still, we're still so new here. Yeah. The, the class, like the differences between the classes is only sort of starting to show itself, really. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, I just wanted to go back to something that Chris, uh, sorry, not Christine, Justine. That's all right. That's all right, you don't know my name, so that's okay. Um, <laughs> said earlier about, you know, you're up there by yourself when you're doing stand-up. So, you know, it's either fly or die. And I was curious, um, Madeline and Justine, when have you died? And why do you think that that happened? I'm assuming that you had picked it over and analysed it to death after that experience. Um, <clears throat> I do believe, though, <clears throat> there's no such thing as a bad audience. I think if the audience aren't laughing, then you're not doing your job. Um, you haven't I, read the room. Yeah, you haven't read the room. <laughs> uh, the thing is, though, when you've been... Uh, yeah, I've, of course, as a comedian, I've died. Not recently, uh, actually. God, touch wood, where's my next gig? Um, but that's because I have a lot of comedy in my mind to go to, you know? I think that um, when I was a new comedian... Actually, when I, the year I won the Billy T Award in 2003, my show was called The Justine Smith Hour, but really it should have been called The Justine Smith 45 Minutes because I would get to the end of that show and just finish and have nothing. And now I would be able to go, oh, well, I've got this and this. So, I, I, I mean, I, I haven't... I, dying is not something that happens to me. I have a, you know... I mean, that sounds immensely arrogant, mm. but... Uh, <laughs> but... <laughs> But you, you, but you know you don't. But you wouldn't go to your job that you've been doing for 25 years and suddenly suck at it. You know, like well, you might if you got a bad attitude. <laughs> um, what I'm trying to say is that um, th that shouldn't be part of my work anymore. You know, like I mean, sure, I've, I mean, recently, I, you know, always in a gig, if you're doing like half an hour, there'll be a bit where you go, oh shit balls, they didn't like that. But then it's my job to work out what they do like, basically. Yeah. Let's take um, a final question. Um, we're going to be, uh, Philip and I will be in the foyer signing books. Mm -hmm. Will be. Uh, which will be, be. extremely <laughs> reasonably they'll, they'll be, priced. They'll be cracking jokes and we'll be signing Yeah, books. yeah. Um, and these guys will be doing BVs. So it'll be great. I'm off to Miller's. <laughs> so one final question. One final question. Better be good. Wave yeah. No pressure. Mm. No pressure. A funny question would be good, wouldn't it? Don't faff it up. Kilda <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tato, um, I was just interested in your history taking. How far back did you go, and what was the oldest comedic You'll have to event? buy a book. <laughs> <laughs> we wanted to go all the way back, and pre-European comedy was one of the things I was very keen on, but 
there is so little research done on this. And the, the two, there are literally two people who could really give us that story. And one of whom I got the impression that he's got a book coming out fairly soon. Mm. So, um, so that wasn't, we didn't really have that access to it. One of the things I was keen not to tell that story, but to have someone really inform it for us. Because, so really we've gone back to um, the goldfields and we've gone to Charles Thatcher, who was a goldfield balladeer who would go from town to town writing humorous songs. And I was really keen that we uh, include him because he's probably one of the first comedy books ever created, which is the, the Whakatipu Diaries, which is his humorous songs from the South Island, are extraordinarily racist. Mm. And the anti-Chinese songs, mm. Uh, we, in for um, Funny As, the TV series, there's all these extras, online extras, and we've got um, three uh, groups of uh, Asian New Zealanders talking about uh, anti-Asian comedy, which has been a really strong strain in our comedy. So that's why we included um, Charles Satcher. So I would like to have gone back further, but that research hasn't really been done, and that will be... That will be soon. Mm. Mm. Cool. Anyone else want a pressing question? Time for a really quick one. Yeah. Quick sticks. Right quick middle, sticks. Then. Oh, now everyone wants to ask. Uh, <laughs> sorry, people. Come on. Good evening. How Good evening. Hello. Um, real quick. Justine, you said you had a run-in with David Seymour. Uh, what happened? Yes. <laughs> Thank you, because I want to know. Oh, God. Okay, so da this is the most complex seven days has ever got, apparently. But uh, David Seymour came on the show, and he was a real dickhead to me, specifically. He was really nice to the... I was the only woman on. Surprise, surprise. And, um, and he was really horrible to me. And I took it, and I took it, and then I did not take it anymore. So I gave it back to him, and that was all right. But what really got people was at the end, when he went and shook everyone's hand, and he went to shake my hand, and I just went... Like that. And it was a freaking uproar. People thought that I was just the rudest bitch. But um, he was really horrific to me, really sexist and really horrible. And it was incredibly uncomfortable. All, all my mates, like Ben Hurley and, and Di, they were horrified. The audience was horrified, the live audience. He was a real dick. And so that's all, really. I, just, I gave it back to him and a little bit of made, made the cut, but not much. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, quite, um, well, it, it has to be. It's, a, it's a, an hour and a half record that goes down to 27 minutes. They didn't, they didn't really edit it in his favour. He ended up looking like the dickhead he is. But, um, you know, he, he just yeah, it was an unpopular. It's, apparently it's rude not to shake someone's hand, but I didn't want to touch him. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's quite a good place to leave it, yeah. actually. There's a great life lesson, ladies and gentlemen. Don't touch David Seymour. Don't touch him. <laughs> you don't I'd know like where to thank uh, my panellists. Uh, thank you very much to Philip Matthews, Madeline Sami, and Justine Smith. We would also very much like to thank Word uh, to Rachel Marianne and everything for including this. And Rachel has actually played a very important part in the genesis of the book because I went to her saying, who do you reckon would be a publisher that might talk to me? 
So thank you for Aww. that. Thank you for that coffee, Rach. And remember, to, the word website is always there, so check in with uh, what they are doing next. Um, Philip and I will be in the foyer Someone very looks. soon at uh, trying to remember how to sign our names. <laughs> um, and the price is very reasonable on the book. It's a great book. Ding. So thank you very much.